Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia. Welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is actor, musician, writer, producer, and director Zoe Lister-Jones. Zoe has appeared in countless TV shows and movies, some of which she wrote and produced herself. Many of us fell in love with Zoe on Life in Pieces, and in 2020, she released the film The Craft Legacy. You may also know her from television series like Whitney and New Girl. Zoe has written and produced her own films, including Lola vs. Consumed and Breaking Upwards, and one of my personal favorites, Band-Aid. And her newest comedy, How It Ends, is out right now. It is the story of a young woman who's trying to reconcile her relationships in the face of the literal end of the world, with guidance from her younger self, who happens to be imaginary. Zoe has incredibly unique insights into nearly every aspect of screen production. I am so excited to pick her brain about movies, television, representation, diversity, and the future of the industry. Let's get started. I feel like you are my closest friend that I don't know that well. Does that make sense? 100. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Like the amount of time you and I spend messaging each other. And like, I mean, I'll speak for both of us. So hopefully it's not just me, but I'm like, we're clearly really kind of obsessed with each other. We like the other person does, but we've like never really gotten to hang out. We've never had a solo hangout. Like the one time we were like, we're actually, I feel like in each other's presence, to like celebrate the love that we, that is unexplored between us was at like the 2020 Vanity Fair Oscar party. Yep. And we were like, we're doing it. This is our year. And then a <laughs> pandemic happened and I was like, okay, so I'll just see you yeah. on, on the phone forever. Yeah. yeah. Forever. 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 I will like, I will like everything from afar forever. <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, what a crazy time. Yeah. Insanity. But now I get to like, at least have a real conversation and look at you through a screen, 
rather than just like DM you like, you're brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Keep doing everything you're doing all the time. This looks really amazing. I'm so excited (laughs) for you. I mean, what a weird time to be afraid and and like witness suffering and find the silver linings that you're grateful for, you know? Yes. It all felt very confusing. For sure. Yeah, still does. Yeah. Well, and I imagine that 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 confusion is what led to the film, which I want to talk about. But before we get into right now, (laughs) I still, I do want to, I want to dig around a little because (laughs) grew up in Brooklyn and- And you have described yourself with this term that I just, as the moment I read it, I was like, I need to know everything about this because this is not what I would have expected, which I kind of love when, when I ask someone what they were like as a kid. And it's so different from the person sitting across from me in, in these conversations. You've described yourself as a teen rude girl. What <laughs> does that mean? <laughs> Well, I, I I was very polite, but a rude girl like was like oh, a, a girl who liked ska music, who likes ska music. I'll still I'll still hold the title. Um, so I had really good manners, and that mm-hmm. but I but I was deeply into the world of ska music. <laughs> so and they called angsty. yeah. I was definitely angsty, mm-hmm. um, but I was always also like. I don't know, very responsible. Like mm-hmm. I was, I was always obsessed with like people pleasing, even from a young age. So I wasn't like a tantrum thrower or like a, I was not a rebellious teen, even though I mm-hmm. think by the looks of me, one would have assumed that. Cause like I shaved my head when I was young, like I was 12 and I shaved my head and I wore like really wild, you know, thrift store, like polyester, <laughs> Uh, like leisure suits and, and shit. Um, so I think I like, I always presented as a person who was like, yeah, more rebellious than actually my nature. Mm. See, in my head, I'm picturing you looking like one of my Italian uncles, but then the ska uh, throws me in like a, a so big, like, yes, funny I world. did look like, I looked like your Italian uncles, but I had like those weird, like, like a shaved head and like weird, like wispy skater bangs that were like dyed a different oh color. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like when I did it, I just didn't have the foresight to know that it would bring me so mm. much attention that I think was quite negative for me. Like it brought a lot of mm. bullying. I just thought it was cool. Like I had, um, my friends were always older and I was really into just like exploring different aesthetic sensibilities. So Mm -hmm. I think I like jumped in with a little naivety also because I then was consistently misgendered because I looked, I mean, I I hadn't really gone through puberty and, and there I didn't understand the term for that. You know, at that age, Mm -hmm. I was just, I just understood the pain that I was in all the time of like, you know, being called a boy. And, um, and at at an age when I really wanted to be, I don't know, like entering my, my sexuality and understanding my body as a girl, because that is Mm -hmm. how I identified. And yeah, it was a, it was definitely a very angsty time, (laughs) but I wasn't rude. (laughs) I have two questions about the head shaving because I went through a phase where I really wanted to do that and my parents were not having it. So I'm curious if you told them or if you just did it. And and what was the de- what was the deciding factor? I mean, to take a pair of clippers to your head as a young girl is a pretty major moment. Yeah. 
Well, um, my mom took me to the hairdresser because <laughs> my mom is really cool and was always very supportive. And I think, well, I think in retrospect, I understand my head shaving in a little bit of a different way, but that my mom, I haven't really talked about this publicly, but my mom had a boyfriend who I think was sort of grooming me mm-hmm. um, and left at, at a fortunate time before like sort of physical abuse was happening. But I think there was a lot of confusing emotional stuff happening where mm-hmm. I at around 11 was being, I think I understood myself to be sexualized by someone older. Mm-hmm. I had talked to my mom about dyeing my hair and I had long hair and she had said something interesting to me, like that I shouldn't dye my hair because people would think I was older than I am. And I think she specifically said men. Mm. And I remembered being like, what? Like, I didn't understand her warning or what she was grappling with. Or, you know, those warnings that I think in any Mm -hmm. situation, a mother is sort of like concerned at that age because it is that specific seminal moment when I think we start to understand ourselves as like prey. And uh, so I think there was probably a sense of relief in some ways when I was like, I want to shave it all off for her. And she actually took me to, she had this amazing Japanese hairstylist who worked out of his house and he did the whole thing, you know, in, in such a like beautiful sort of like meticulous Japanese Mm. aesthetic with scissors. So he didn't even use, and it took hours and he just like just so beautifully it was like it was Uh like meticulously cut it all off for me and I did love it but I think there was something about it that was an interesting like dichotomy of I think I thought I was going to be invisible and instead it made me hyper visible you know Mm, that's really (laughs) interesting and and you don't know the ways that you'll be visible until you experience it yeah. You know, I, I think about it, it's kind of the same lens of any public notoriety. Yeah. You know, it can be quite traumatic and people will say, well, you signed up for it and no, you can't sign up for something you don't know. Yeah. You know, and I, I find that really interesting that in a way to give yourself both freedom and some protection, you were inadvertently also made a target. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it was such a confusing moment because I think, yeah, I had just started this new school. And so it, it's also, you're already at an age, like in seventh grade when everyone's just like cr- so cruel, but cruel. I like had put this like total other target on my back. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, in the last year, obviously we've all had so much more time to like self-reflect and to in many ways be in conversation with our inner children, which Mm. is, you know, what this like new movie is about. But yeah, that time in my life has come up a lot for me in the last year, because I think it was that invisibility, visibility, Venn diagram is still one that I, I struggle with a lot. And there's, there is something so interesting about the strange ways in which as women, we're often put in these spaces that aren't of our own choosing. Mm -hmm. So figuring out how to have a semblance of control or to stake your identity. Yeah. There is so much tied to hair. 
Yeah. And it's really interesting. I, I've been talking about it. The the gals that I did my first show with and I have talked a lot about our experiences at, at 21 with older men telling us what we could and couldn't do with our hair at work. Yes. It felt so strange. And, and I think, um, I'll never forget, I read something for however everybody, you know, feels about her. It's like, I'm always scared to say her name. I don't know why <laughs> people go so crazy, but I, I read something really poignant that Gwyneth Paltrow said, mm. father died. And I, I remember reading this article about how close they were. And she talked about how she'd had long, long hair for forever. And that she, the grieving process when her dad died was so brutal for her. And she realized she <clears throat> needed to cut her hair off. She was like, I had hair on my body mm. that, you know, had been touching my father when I was holding him when he was like, wow. and, how, and how it was this really emotional experience for her. And I think about my own version in adulthood of, of what you're explaining you went through at 12, being on the receiving end of, um, you know, violation and attention in a workplace mm. that I could mm. not get away from. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I kept cutting my hair. Mm. I cut it over and over and over and over. I mean, to the point, I mean, about, about where yours is now, I just wanted the, like the thing that would get grabbed, the, yes the attention for my femininity. I couldn't get rid of enough of it. Yeah. That's so interesting. Isn't it wild for our whole lives that this is such a, a, a strangely weaponized gendered thing? Oh yeah. And I think how we like embody femininity and whose rules, you know, mm-hmm. those are, I think is so confusing. What else do you think really impacted you as a kid? I, I think about what you're talking about grappling with, finding identity, having the boldness to experiment with your identity a lot. And then obviously you speak about going, you know, to study acting. When, when did you know that you wanted to tell stories? Was that an, was that an evolution for you or were you always artistic and then it led to this? Uh, I think I was always really interested in storytelling. My mom is a video artist. And so I was raised like in a household in which there was already a lot of storytelling and her work has always dealt with identity politics. And, And I think, you know, how the personal and the political intersect and stuff. So I was very fortunate to be raised in a household where those themes were being explored. And I knew that that could also be a career, even though I witnessed my mom and my dad, who uh, is a conceptual photographer, I witnessed how much heartache also came mm. with being an artist. And so I think I I was really afraid of becoming an artist because I felt that it was like cellularly a part, like a necessity for me in terms of my expression. But I also did not want to struggle in the ways that mm-hmm. I saw my parents struggle, both financially and emotionally. I was also very shy, which is, was also confusing for people because a shy person generally doesn't like shave their head and wear and wild clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was really shy and I was afraid of, my mom put me in acting classes to help me combat my shyness. Aww. And then like, it wasn't till later in high school that I actually had like, 
really started auditioning for plays because I was so nervous to do so. And then like on a whim, I auditioned for Tisch NYU's acting school. I had done some plays, but like Mm. the idea that I would put all of my eggs into that basket wasn't really necessarily a part of my plan. I really loved writing. And I thought that I wanted to study that more Mm. intensely and just go to like a liberal arts college that wasn't so specialized. But then I got a scholarship to Tisch and my mom was like, you have to go. And it was that like total reversal because I was like, but shouldn't I be like a lawyer or something? (laughs) Shouldn't I like (laughs) go do something that is steady and stable and that can like give me a life that I didn't have growing Mm. up. And it was, it was really more my mom being like, no, you should go take advantage of this opportunity and see what, what comes of it. So I am forever grateful for that. But Mm. it was in college that I started to explore more of my voice as a storyteller in the realm of performance as well. Like I started to write my own. Um, it actually started with like sketch comedy. Really? I was, yeah, I was in acting school and there was a sketch comedy class. And funnily, I just loved, I realized that I loved writing my own material mm-hmm. and that I loved writing comedy and it was short form. So I didn't like think of it as storytelling, but you know, it was sort of that like, entry point. And I went to David Mamet's acting school, the Atlantic uh, theater company acting school. And Mm. David Mamet would like just drop in for classes uh, for like a guest class sometimes. And everyone would just stop what they were doing because he was like a God there. And we'd then all scramble like within 10 minutes to put up whatever we had been working on for him. And he was notoriously cruel, you know, in a way that is like sort of that like acting school thing of like, you got to earn your mm. keep or whatever, but like, you know, I like respond well to that. Oy. I don't either. Um, and so everyone was, you know, so nervous and people would put, put scenes up and he'd be like, sit down, you know, like work harder or whatever. And, um, and I, I ended up putting up a scene that I had written and he let me get through the whole thing, which was also rare for him. And then afterwards he said, who wrote that? And I said, I did. And he said, uh, you should write a screenplay. And it was so like, not, you know, I was so taken aback that he would even have the grace or, or generosity to say that to me in public. And then interestingly, my sketch comedy teacher really punished me afterwards, I think for that he would, uh, he, he ended up failing me or trying to fail me that year, even though I was like the um, artistic director of our sketch comedy, like group. And I had perfect attendance and I, you know, wrote all of these things. And he was what I found out later. He, he would sort of choose a girl every year that he would do this to, that he would, um, basically write a really abusive um, end of year review and then try to fail. Yeah, it was an interesting, it was interesting because I was finding my voice and also coming up against a man and an authority figure and a founding company member there who really wanted to take my voice away and to show me that he said things in that review that were like, I'm gonna, you'll never work in this industry and like really damaging things to a young person. And I ended up taking it. I also have never told this story publicly, but uh, I ended ended up taking it to um, the Dean because 
I was on a, a merit scholarship. So I, my grades and I, and I had all A's. So it was like for this person to come in and also threaten that for me based on nothing logical, mm-hmm. I went and, um, you know, made him change my grade, but it was a really interesting and traumatic experience in which I mm-hmm. saw a glimpse of what might be to come, you know, as a, a woman storyteller. And mm-hmm. I've never experienced anything as abusive since, thank, thank God. But I think that only drove me to prove him wrong and to say, no, I, I will write a screenplay and I won't let you diminish what I'm trying to explore here. And then sadly, the next year, a, a female student came to me and said, it's happening to me. Did the school ever do anything about it? No. God, that makes me so angry. Yeah. Especially when everyone knows, when it's yeah. such a clear MO. I, I'm, I'm consistently shocked by that. I worked for someone once who, upon first meeting, I just thought, I'm so excited. I'm so lucky. This is going to mm. be so great. And I was actually pulled aside as the project got underway um, by someone on the crew, an, an older woman. I won't say what department in case for whatever reason <laughs> ever makes it back to the person who I'm talking about, whose name I also won't say. And she just, she said, I got to warn you, he breaks women. Oy. And, mm. and she started regaling me with these tales of women who'd worked for him before and literally pulled up photos because, you know, everything's on the phone and, and like Googled them by year. And you watched these women, I mean, physically wasting away. Oh my God. Becoming so anorexic. And so, and I was like, this feels like a lot. And you've worked with this person for so long. And she said, yep. And like, runs a great crew, good boss. But when you are the woman, you are the one he'll break. And I was like, man, what is this? And and it really... it makes me genuinely curious about the way we all interact because in what you and I do in storytelling, we can make things more binary than they are in reality. So when a villain is a villain, the villain is bad. Right. Usually very black and white. But in real life, people can have largely positive experiences with someone who will be a total bastard to Mm. one person in an environment, Mm -hmm. but great to the 99 other people in the room. And there's so much complexity with how we show up, how we lead, who is abusive, who is helpful, who, and sometimes they're all the same person. And I'm, I'm, I'm confounded by your story because Everyone knew well enough to know, oh, there's a girl this guy picks out every year to destroy, but nobody's yeah. done anything about it. No, I know. I, um, and it was interesting because I had heard whispers of it, you know, but he was so respected and revered. And when I got into his class, I started to notice things that he would do. Well, he would call all the uh, women, sweetie, honey, baby. Mm. And there was a girl who um, was Mormon. And she asked in a comedy class what a wet willy was. She didn't know. And he came over and he gave her one. <laughs> and then when I was directing these two young women in a, in a sketch, they had like devised this funny handshake. And he, sat, he came in and sat in on me directing them. And he said, 
what if you twisted her titty at the end? And these things kept happening. And I think instead of taking it to anybody, you know, as a 19 year old or whatever, I just did that thing that I've learned to do that we still learn to do, which is you just like kind of shut down and guard yourself against that person. But I think that when I lose all respect for a person in that way, I think it's palpable. I think that dynamic then does put a spotlight on the one that they choose of, oh, you know, I want to then take this person down or abuse them or I don't know, whatever. But I do think like what you're talking about in terms of the complexity of abusive dynamics isn't talked about enough, like because I've been on sets where a guy has grabbed my ass and as an outspoken feminist, (laughs) I don't have the words to show up for myself in that moment. I just sort of get really quiet. And then that person will stay on that set and I'll have a relationship with them. I mean, not a, you know what I mean? Like in terms of like, there will be forgiveness. I will move on from it. I I never spoke of it to that person again. And that person is a kind person. I mean, and has a big heart. And that person contains multitudes, right? Like where it, it isn't this just like really strict, like, abuser abused evil victim Mm -hmm. like it's a a person that then you can grow to or before you know have genuine affection for and I remember saying something about that person and someone said well he's from a different time and I said Mm -hmm. I promise you in that time women didn't like having their asses grabbed either but the excuses that even I make Mm -hmm. because I think I think we want to make excuses in order to I guess, lessen the blow of the self-victimization that would come from saying, oh no, that actually did happen and that's not okay. Mm. But even, you know, with my mom's boyfriend, like I obviously I've been dealing with that a lot in therapy for my adult life and and I really loved him, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that is what is so confusing about a lot of those dynamics is that oftentimes people love their abusers most of the, you know, in, in terms of, yeah, the dynamics that mm. I think, especially as women, we have so, the, the self-worth that gets wrapped up in those dynamics is so confusing and, com- and complicated. Yeah. Well, and the reality, again, that it isn't what we see on TV most often. It's not some random person on the street who, you know, yeah. throws you in the back of a van Right. Typically, statistically, it's it's a person that you know. It's a yeah. person with whom you have a version of an intimate relationship, not necessarily romantically intimate, but someone who you're close to. And, yeah. and that, I think, can be so complex. Yeah. But I do think, to your point about, you know, all the therapy that at least you and I have been lucky enough to have. <laughs> um yeah. I think about what you can process through and then what you can create out of these things. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when I think about your career and the, you know, the stories you tell that I have loved, I mean, fuck, Band-Aid was so good. <laughs> it was Thank just you. so good. And, and you know, you and, and Daryl have worked on incredible projects together and separately, you know, as, as creatives and partners and spouses. And, and now this new movie, I I feel like making a film 
about the last day on earth, you know, to represent the apocalypse of the pandemic, but also making the film about your on-screen character having a dialogue with her inner child. The moment I saw the preview, I was like, she's been going to therapy too. <laughs> like, is that where some of this stuff comes from? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I don't think that I know how to fully process the deepest existential questions that I'm navigating without doing it through my work. Like, I, mm. I, I think, like, writing for me is, like, such a lifeline in terms of all of those deep personal queries. And mm. um, therapy actually has been, like, I've struggled with therapy because I think I can sometimes, like, be too good a talker. You know, I'm sure you have that too. <laughs> you're like, I've got a self-diagnosis that's going to shut this whole thing down and you're going to give me an A+. Plus. Oh yeah. You I'm know? like, I will get an A on this. Watch me. <laughs> yeah. I'll do the homework. Tell me yeah. what the questions are. Is there a form I can fill out? Love a yeah. form. A graph. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to outperform everybody else and it's going to yeah. be awesome. And yeah. maybe if I do a really good job at this and I tell you everything that you think you want to know, I won't actually have to talk about my feelings. I'll just talk yes. about my observations of my feelings. <laughs> yeah, that familiar? Exactly. Very familiar, Sophia. Very um, familiar. And then you don't get, and then you, and then you don't actually, you know, figure the shit out or mm -hmm. get into the muck. Because I think for people like you and I, the muck is not a comfortable place. Like mm -hmm. it's we we we'll, we'll sort the muck and show that we can do it perfectly, <laughs> you know. But like, but the whole thing of the muck is that like there is no answer and there is no way to do it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And it's all about uncertainty and imperfection. Mm -hmm. So I think this movie in particular was really me trying to sort through the muck because I was being told by my therapist that I needed to be having conversations with my inner child. And I did not know how to do that. <laughs> um, and so I started to write that down in a screenplay where I was actually having a conversation with like, a metaphysical embodiment of my younger self. Okay, so you have this moment in college. I realize I really skipped ahead for the folks listening at home because I'm just <laughs> pretending that we're having like a, a lunch date. Um, but you have this experience in college. Mamet tells you to write a screenplay, which is so insane and amazing. What? When was the first moment that you did that? Because, you know, going on to get movies like these that we're referencing made there there's a leap there what yeah. what's in what's in the leap and and when in that period did you go abroad to study at rada like what when did all these things happen i need a timeline i need to okay, understand okay, the homework. Okay. <laughs> you're getting an a plus on the research so just know that i went to rada my senior year of college mm. um and i studied obviously acting there. But when I came back from RADA, my boyfriend broke up with me promptly. And he was really like not a great boyfriend leading up to that breakup. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I, again, didn't know what to do with that heartache. I had never, I had never been in, he was my first relationship. I was mm -hmm. sort of a, a late bloomer in that way. And so I started to write a one woman show that was about heartbreak. And I played like 11 different characters or something that were all dealing with different forms of, of heartbreak. Mm. And that again, like it is like a testament to the mentors and the people that just give you those like 
moments along the way of encouragement. There's this this actor named Siobhan Fallon, and she taught a solo performance class mm. at NYU. And I did some like wild, insane thing in her class. And she took me aside and said, you should do one woman, write a one-woman show. And I sort of like buried it for a year or so. And then once the breakup happened, it was like, oh yeah, that's what I have to do. Mm-hmm. And so it was, again, like my first real experience as a storyteller in a longer format was also purely like a means of catharsis. <laughs> and then that's what got me my first agent and manager and the New York Times like came, even though it was just like a week long run and they gave me a little write up. And so it was like a really cool, mm. also like, yes, keep going. You know, yeah. it was a cool way to, to know that this was something that I could explore further. And then from there I was acting, I was doing all the law and orders as like a guest star. I was just, you know, like <laughs> cutting my, my teeth in New York. I was doing stage work. And Daryl and I entered into an open relationship. Um, we, we started dating and about two years into our relationship, we entered into an open relationship and we wrote a screenplay about it, which actually started, I had written, I'll back up. I had written a screenplay on my own mm. about Dollywood <laughs> um, yes. that was never made. That was my first screenplay. And I was like, yes, but it was too big a story. Like, I, you know, for a first screenplay and for any aspiring screenwriters out there, it is, I think, smart to make to look at it pretty serially too, of like, what could I actually make or get made as a person who doesn't have any connections really. And so then Daryl wrote this story of our open relationship. And then I was like, I can't write that. Like I'm too, I'm living it. You know, like this is, seems sociopathic. <laughs> um, Cause it was already so hard what we were doing, but to like try to then like narrate it in real time um, in the format of a screenplay was like a little too much for me. But a year later, he, he, we were still in, in it, but we were like a year into the open relationship and he gave me the screenplay to read. And I was like, Oh hell no. <laughs> I was like, let me in there. I got, <laughs> I got to fix some things. <laughs> and so then we, we wrote that together and we made it for $15,000. We, we like got family and friends to um, give, you know, whatever they could and, and made it with literally like two crew members off of Craigslist who were working for free. And uh, we wore every hat and we acted in it and that got into South by Southwest and then got bought by IFC and then got a lot of attention and got us, our, you know, our foot, our feet in the door as filmmakers. And so from there, we then went on to make a couple of other films together. And then, but Daryl was always directing. So we were writing, co-writing, co-producing. I was acting and Daryl was directing. And again, it took like this amazing producer named Alex Madigan. We had coffee one day and she said, um, you should direct sort of like apropos of nothing. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and I do think it is just these like these moments like where yeah. um, it just took like literally that one sentence for me to step outside of what I had just understood was the norm of like, no, he's the director, <laughs> you know, um, and to go like, oh, yeah, I could do that. I think because especially as a woman, like I didn't feel that I knew enough or I felt that mm-hmm. I wanted to, to be perfect and I hadn't gone to film school. And I, I need more experience. I need more experience. <laughs> yeah. Even though I had, you know, like been like really in the belly of the beast on like 
three features already and was in mm. the editing room and was so much a part of the filmmaking team. So, yeah. And that's, I think, when I really was like, let me go, go make my own film, which is what Band-Aid was. Mm. So good. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. I really just loved it. Um, how do you think, because you're, you're talking about your evolution as an artist, as an individual, and you also have been really open in terms of talking about the ways in which in your own individual spaces and on your projects, you can push the industry to be better. You know, you really want to make sure that you have crews that are centering the female experience. You also talk so much about and and walk the walk of including diverse groups of people um, proper representation when casting. I mean, what is something that you think having done it? Cause so many people will say, well, I just couldn't find someone. It's like, well, yeah. but you could. Yeah. So, so what do you think the industry might need to consider or, or what efforts do you think might need to be made so that more casts and crews can look and feel like the ones you put together on your projects? Um, well, you know, I mean, I also have uh, room to grow and improve uh, when it comes to, I think, equity. Uh, we all do. But mm-hmm. um, but on Band-Aid, I decided to hire a crew made up of entirely women because, like you said, I had I had bore witness to to just how insanely inequitable it was uh, behind the camera and how little you know, because this was pre-Me Too and like mm-hmm. it was sort of before a lot of conversations were being had around this. And it was just like something that we were taught to accept um, yeah. that that there were women, you know, in hair and makeup. There were women script supervisors. There were women in wardrobe. But camera department, G&E, that was not something to even, I think, like look, look at. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it was like... Yeah. Um, and like you said, just that idea of like, we couldn't find the person or women or people of color don't have enough experience or, you know, mm-hmm. or LGBTQIA, you know, people, just anyone who's outside of the sort of pool that has mm-hmm. been tapped for so long. And so I guess I, yeah, I just wanted, I knew that if I didn't draw that sort of hard line in the sand, I would fall victim to the same excuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with my women um, department heads, like there was pushback and it's not pushback from a malicious place. It's pushback from people wanting to do the best possible job for you and believing Mm -hmm. that the white dude they've worked with for the last 10 years is going to do that because they have a shorthand and Mm -hmm. um, that person has a lot of experience and that person's going to help us make the days. And so the fear of of working with someone new, I think, is one of the biggest barriers um, for department heads and people in positions where they're making those hiring decisions. Yeah. Um, and I think on Band-Aid, it was like a really cool, I guess, experiment in that way to go like, yeah, but someone who doesn't have experience on a resume mm-hmm. also might be that much hungrier to perform, to show up, to make the day. And it might take like a a little more mentorship, but there's also beauty in that. And so I think that was a really good lesson for us all on that film. 
And I think because that film was small and independent, I was able to make that kind of decision. And then going on to work in the studio system, it becomes much more complicated. Because when you want to hire a crew that is made up entirely of women, there are a lot of legal implications to that in the studio system that they don't want to fuck with. Because there becomes questions around discrimination, which is like, you know... LOL. Um, yeah, the <laughs> irony. <laughs> but uh, you're like, look, we so, got one whole movie this year. One. Yeah, and we're yeah. suddenly, and we're the problem. Okay. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> but I think there are now a lot more databases and mm-hmm. infrastructure, some more infrastructure around diversity and inclusion when it comes to crews, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes work. And I talk to a lot of people and try and share, like, there's this, like, cool um, group called Sporus Co. that sort of highlights BIPOC crew, crew members. And there are a, a number of other groups that are doing that to help create an easier sort of platform and mm-hmm. access point for, you know, an, an answer to the response of, uh, but I couldn't find any, mm-hmm. you know, um, because it's like, well, it's actually quite easy if you just, you know, take the time to shift out of the people that have been a part of your circle for so long. But, Mm -hmm. um, but we have such a long way to go. I, you know, and so I, and I think, like you said, there's a lot of talking the talk and much less walking the walk. But I, I think definitely since Band-Aid was made, there's been a lot more walking the walk at least. And I think these things take a lot of time, sadly. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, big, big shifts do move at a slower pace. And certainly in advocacy and in activist spaces, I've had to learn to breathe and look at the year rather than the week. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, But God, it's hard. And and I, I guess I wonder, you know, to your point, since you launched that endeavor on Band-Aid, I imagine it happened so much more quickly, you know, in in putting together the casting crew for the craft. Well, casting was really exciting on the craft. How did this project come to be, by the way? Because as like the, as one of the OG biggest fans ever of the craft, <laughs> when you announced you were doing this, you know, and there are the DMs to prove it, I just like lost my mind. And I think it's just screaming and sending you emojis. How... How did you do this? It was brought to me, Ooh. but I still, I had to pitch on it. It wasn't like an offer. My agent said, do you want to pitch on a revamp of the craft? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so I then, yeah, came up with a with a, a take on how I would want to reimagine it. Um, mm-hmm. And I had, you know, I went in front of uh, Jason Blum and Doug Wick and, Sony and gave my pitch and I got the gig. So that was really cool. And then it was really a fast moving train from, from that point on, I think all told it was like a two year process. So it was like, wrote it for a year, was in development for a year, which was a really intense development process. And then shot it like a year later. And then, and, and not to say there weren't 1000 roadblocks along the way, uh, as there all, always are. But I think, yeah, I'm a person who's like, if I'm, if I'm doing something, I'm going to, I'm not going to let it, <laughs> I'm not going to let it die. So that was, I think it was important to me in rewatching the craft, the original craft, which I hadn't done, like maybe since my, te- you know, yeah. teenage years. years. Yeah. 
it's such an important film, but also it was very easy to see all the ways in which I wanted to shift some things about Mm -hmm. it. And one of those things was, I mean, I think that film was really interesting in terms of representation. It was, you know, there there was a black teen witch who was dealing with racism, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that was really important, you know, Mm -hmm. at that time uh, in terms of representation. But, but yeah, I think for me, like, I was really interested in trans representation Mm -hmm. um, when it came to a story about young women stepping into their power. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think just around like feminism in general and how um, trans women can be all too often excluded Mm -hmm. from these conversations and these spaces that I really wanted that to be a part of the story. And that was a really interesting part of the casting process because, you know, I was looking for someone really specific, which was like a trans Latina teenager. (laughs) And so we worked with Glad, who was incredibly helpful. And they Mm. basically put out a a big casting notice to tons of non-actors. And I think we got like 200 submissions of young trans Latina women. Yeah. And I found Zoe Luna who, who got the part uh, through that process. And she was just such an incredible addition to the cast and just to the, just the entire experience. But I think in terms of the crew on that film, I brought a lot of the women with me from Band-Aid. I brought my DP, Hilary Spira. I brought my editor, Libby Kunin. I brought my producer, Natalia Mm -hmm. Anderson. I brought my production designer, Hilary Gertler. And I think that was just that, which is like, it's not a lot (laughs) of women. (laughs) But when people walk on set and the the department heads are women, Mm -hmm. it is like, it it tends to like throw people. You know, they're just like, wait, what's happening? Um, (laughs) So it is an interesting experience when I feel like I'm failing, Mm -hmm. you know, because I'm not doing more or having more women on a crew that it's already feels quite like, I don't know, revolutionary to people outside of of me. (laughs) It is. And it creates a very seismic and palpable shift. Yeah. Even for, you know, for our pilot that we did in February of this year, it's me, you know, as the number one and as an executive producer and my showrunner, my, all my EPs, you know, our DP, yes, our script supervisor, multiple department heads, all women. And what was really fun was to watch all the men on set talk about yeah. how they had more fun working on our show than they had. In oh, that's like, amazing. For you guys too. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Have more fun too. Yeah. On, on Band-Aid, Adam Pally, who stars in it with me, was oftentimes the only man on set. And the way that he talked about it was just mm-hmm. like, that was the best experience of my life, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think it is, it's so not about like excluding anyone. It's actually about mm-hmm. like, the beauty of allyship in that way is when someone can realize how much their life can be improved when when the, these huge paradigms shift. Yes. That it's not a scary thing, that it's actually mm. a, a really, like, enlivening thing. For everyone. Yeah. yeah. When you think about those kinds of paradigms shifting, and, and I mean, even, you know, the story you were telling a moment ago with the original craft and with your film legacy in bringing in the character of Lourdes in wanting to highlight this experience for, you know, young trans kids. How did you ensure that the character was an accurate reflection of those kids and their experiences? Did you 
Did you have Zoe give a lot of feedback and information to you for the character? Did you guys tweak that together? Yeah, Zoe was obviously a huge asset. And while quite young, she turned 18 between me casting her and us shooting. So, Mm. you know, she's a baby, but she was already, you know, a trans activist and educator. And so she's just, she's so well-spoken and Mm. so... Yeah, just um, edifying and enlightening in a way that is that that is always like really open. So I'm just so grateful to her. But also, I worked with a trans man named Scott Schofield, who I was put in touch with through Glad, and he before Zoe came on board uh, worked with me on the script. You know, because the nuances of language are so much a part of yeah. inc- inclusivity and education around trans inclusivity in particular. And so, yeah, there were just, there were so many moments where it was like, like I had written, Zoe's character's name is Lourdes, and I had written Lourdes to be handing Lily, who's played by Kaylee Spaney, a pair of shorts because Lily gets her period in class and bleeds through her pants. And the, all the, the girls follow her into the bathroom and Lourdes was the one to hand her a pair of shorts to say like, I wore these in gym, they're a little sweaty, but I thought you could use them. And Scott was like, just that, just the act of handing shorts is is loaded, right? Because like, and there are all of these these things that I as a cis woman would not know about. Mm-hmm. And just when it comes to talk about hair, you know, like just the importance of hair mm. and the importance of language, like just in so many, I mean, I can't remember all of the ways, but in so many moments in the script where it was like just just the tiniest tweak will make this more comfortable Mm -hmm. for a trans person to say or to hear or any of those things. And Scott then came to Toronto where we shot. And on the same day that we had our sexual harassment seminar, we had a seminar on trans inclusivity for the entire crew, which Mm -hmm. I was like, this should be happening on every set, whether or not there is a trans person in the cast or crew. Like it, it was so edifying for so many people. And like, especially like when you're not in LA or New York, but even in LA or New York, there's just like a lot of like older white dudes yeah. <laughs> um, who might not be having these conversations, like no shade to older white dudes. But I do think there's a, there's a mm-hmm. generational thing and, and also just, uh, just an access thing of like, where would you be having these conversations, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was amazing to have Scott just talk about like his experience being misgendered mm. and the way that he spoke about it was not around like that anyone's doing anything wrong. And that, you know, just that discussion around intention versus impact, like mm. you're not meaning to hurt me, but I just want you to know how much it hurts me yeah. because it's so hard for a cis person to understand yeah. that pain. And so it, I think just in those ways, I, yeah, I was, I'm just so grateful to those voices and to those educators Mm. in that process and beyond. That's really beautiful. And it's so interesting because, you know, thinking about representing a, a, a more current and full teen experience in that movie brings me right back to oh and then the pandemic project was inner child work like yeah, you worked totally. with other kids <laughs> and then you worked on the kid inside yourself yeah do you know when the moment happened when you were when you were supposed to be talking to your inner child and you started 
you know, journaling or typing or, or whatever you were doing. And then you went, oh, I have to make a movie out of this. <laughs> was there a moment it, that it clicked? I think it was like pretty early on in quarantine mm. because I think like so many of us, we were f- facing so many, just the onslaught of over- overwhelming emotions mm. that I think even if you consider yourself to be an emotionally evolved person, none of us had the tools. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I was also going through a lot of other stuff um, in my personal life that went right up against lockdown. So that once lockdown hit, it was like all of the things that I was already overwhelmed by then, you know, were put into even sharper focus and I was really forced to sit with them. Mm. And so I think it was around that time. And Kaylee Spaney, who is the star of The Craft, and and The Craft Legacy was also a story of my childhood because Mm. my mom, different boyfriend, but my mom started dating guy when I was in high school and moved me into his home with his three sons. And so that was my way of, I think processing a very traumatic moment in my teenage years Mm. as I was coming into my womanhood and my sexuality. And so the work was starting there, as you said. And Kaylee and I were doing that work together because she was playing a version of my teenage self. So that then when we were very good friends after the filming of that movie, we were still talking a lot about just adolescence and my adolescence, her adolescence, what our inner children needed to hear in conjunction with my therapist pushing me to have these conversations and in conjunction with me reading this book that my mom had given me years ago called The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller, which is a really, it's a good read, highly recommend. (laughs) So yeah, it was sort of like the intersection of all of those things where I knew that I had to start sorting through the swamp of that. So Would you say that your character in the film is perhaps most like you or does she still feel different? No, she's very much like me. I would say she's very close to me and it's a really personal film in that way. And I think, you know, we didn't want to center the film in the pandemic Mm -hmm. or in quarantine, but we wanted to create a landscape emotionally that was paralleling it. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, we have this like incredible cast and while this stuff, stuff does all sound heavy, it is a comedy (laughs) Um, because I think that is also a way that I process things. So, I mean, it's a comedy that is, that also goes to quite deep places, but, um, but I think when we, when I was calling up my friends to be in the film, there was a lot of fear around like, can we show up and be funny at this really harrowing moment where every morning you kind of didn't know if you were able to do your job when we're, when Mm -hmm. our job is to, to perform and kind of like leave your baggage at the door. And I think that was a big part of these conversations that we were having with our friends and cast, like wherever you are on any given day, because we are shooting a movie that takes place on the last day on earth, Mm -hmm. you can just bring that and be that and use this as a tool to process that. And so I think yeah, it really, for me at least, and I think probably for some some of our cast as well, I know for Kaylee, it was truly such a lifeline at a moment where we didn't have a creative outlet. Like we, yeah. this was the first time that all of us had been on camera. So yeah, it was a really interesting experiment in that way. And and what is it like filming in the midst of a pandemic? I mean, you, you know, you use the empty streets of LA. You've got most everybody pretty distanced. Yeah. Uh, how how do you work around the 
the strange requirements put in place by the last year and a half? Um, well, I mean, you know, there's a very clear set of COVID safety protocols and PPE that we were following, but I think we took it to an extra level of caution because it was so early that, you know, we devised a narrative that could be shot entirely outdoors and six feet apart. Mm -hmm. So you'll see in the film, like when we're in single shots, it looks like we're sitting quite close together, but there's a number of shots that we'll pull out in a wide and you'll see how far apart we actually are and that we were cheating most of the time, Mm. which was wild. And, you know, I'm, my character's on a journey saying goodbye to the people she loves. And I never touch a single person. I never hug them. I never, you know, like I'm like with Olivia Wilde and I'm like, she's like, plays my best friend. I leave her and I'm like, bye-bye. And I just like, wave, you know? Just like fade into the bush like Homer Simpson. Yeah. Oh my God. So, um, but in that way, I, you know, I love it for that reason because it is really a time capsule mm. of this moment and of the empty streets in LA. Like mm-hmm. it was such a surreal time um, yeah. to not see cars. I mean, Kaylee and I are walking just through the streets. And of course we would stop for some cars, but it was really wild. And I think watching it back now is quite emotional because even though we're still in it, the light that we now can sort of see at the end of the tunnel was so not a part of any of our realities. So I think to be creating in that sort of vacuum was, yeah, just so emotional. Well, and I think to your point, there's so much emotion and that's why comedy works as such a great vehicle, you know, for panic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure there's folks at home who are going, okay, I have to see this movie. I want to process the last year and I would love to do it with a laugh instead of a good cry. So how how can people find how it ends? Where can they watch it if they want to <laughs> uh, know? Okay, thank you for the platform to say this. They can watch it on iTunes or Amazon Prime or any basically on demand everywhere. Uh, right. It's also in select theaters across the country. But yeah, there's a, a number of options. So I do hope that your your listeners check it out. Yeah, I have a hunch they will love it as much as everyone who's seen it does. I wonder, you're one of those people who I look at and I'm like, God, I wish I had an eighth the self-discipline. Like, Oh, I, please. No, Sophia. I'm serious. No, I, but we all have those <laughs> things, right? And I, yeah. you know, I'm like reading random, you know, social science reports about stats, which like granted fascinating, but I'm like, I wish I'd made a movie in quarantine. <laughs> like, what, am, what, what did I do this year? And I, I really wonder, do you feel that? Do you feel ownership of the depth of your creativity? Or are you like most of us, you know, with like your brain on a hamster wheel, thinking about what you have to do next? Uh, well, first of all, you did so much in quarantine. So <laughs> I look at you and I'm like, how is she doing all of this? We and all feel work, that about our friends. I know, don't we? I know. Yes. But, I'm like, you know, just. Over there. How does that work exactly? <laughs> Teach me. Yes. But I mean, you know, just your work as an activist outside of your work as an artist is just so inspiring to me. And I just mm-hmm. want to say that I'm just so in awe of, of your discipline in, in that, in that Thank realm you. and, and the amount that you give and show up and the amount of shit you take for it. I, I just so deeply 
am inspired by you. But yes, I think I'm always on the hamster wheel to answer your question. It's really hard to celebrate accomplishments. And I try to pause to do that. But there's also like with each accomplishment, and I'm sure you experience this too, a momentum that Mm. then feels like the stakes are so high that you need to jump on it right away or everything goes away. Mm. So there's a lot of like anxiety all the time about how to elevate to the next thing and how to output more. And so I think I still struggle with that a lot because output is also, as I've said many times in this um, conversation, like it's also an incredibly important tool for me personally, but I can also really like wear myself down. Mm -hmm. So it's that difficult combination of like artistry and rest that I do not understand yet. I don't either. It's so hard. Does setting specific goals help you mitigate that anxiety or are you more of the of the kind of person who might say, oh, I'd like to make a project like that next? Do you give yourself a specific task or are you looking at sort of areas of inspiration? I tend to like, like I've had an idea for a film for years. And oftentimes that, that happens for me where it's like, it's not the right time, but there, there's mm. something that is percolating for a long time where it's like one day I know I'm going to make that. And then I think those moments arise sort of organically in a way that feels exciting. Cause it's mm. like, okay, now's the moment that I'm going to make that thing. I think after Band-Aid, there was a lot of pressure because a first feature that gets attention, then there's always like the crash of the second feature <laughs> where it, there's just a lot of pressure. Like, are you going to be able to perform, especially when the second feature is a studio film and, you know, there's a lot more cooks in the kitchen and stuff. And mm. so I think in choosing my second feature, I felt a lot more of like a lot more heady about like what goals I wanted to set. And, you know, I want to make a studio film and I want to do this. And, and I think now that I've done that and then made a film that was mm. like how it ends is like the opposite. It was like so gorilla um, and so intimate. We had, we had a crew of four wow. people, you know, some days it was three people that I think now I feel a little more freedom to just, follow my gut in terms of just what I want to make and try to get back to the purity of that impulse rather than like setting specific goals, I guess. Is there someone or something that's currently inspiring you? Ooh. Um, well, they were on your podcast, but Mae Martin. <laughs> oh. It just, it it hit me in so many uh, places. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel that. I told May, I said, I I literally feel like you opened my head and rooted around through all the boxes in my brain that I have yeah. never let see the light of day. What is, how yeah. have you represented what sort of awkward anxiety and yeah. strangeness, the strangeness of the human experience yeah. when you're not sure where you go? I, yeah, they're just the greatest. The greatest. And like, obviously as a, you know, writer, performer, director, like all the things that May does, but also I think the way that Feel Good like navigates tone is Mm -hmm. something that I'm always so inspired by because my favorite pieces of art are ones that can go really 
deep and dark and then in a moment's notice Mm -hmm. be broad and like take like a wild swing at comedy and I think that yeah that me does that so well and and I just felt so moved and Mm -hmm. so transformed Mm -hmm. at at the end of each of those seasons of that show I felt really moved and really seen yeah. Weirdly. When you feel recognized by something that has nothing to do with you, I, I think yeah. that's really the power of, of really good art. And what I'm realizing is that really the the point of us having this whole conversation <laughs> today is to establish that the three of us need to make a movie. I mean, obviously, uh, can we do Great. it, please? Yeah. A thousand percent. We all work on Zoom every day anyway. We could write a movie on Zoom. Oh, hell yeah. Okay, great. Okay, Perfect. great. Oh, I'm so, so look, excited. That's a specific goal that's been set. And I love it. I and love a, it. and a goal that also is speaking <laughs> to the purity of our impulses all yeah. at the same time. I love it. When you think it's really easy, I, I I think for folks like us, creative people, you know, whether they're artists or filmmakers or writers or or even just curious people to look forward, to set goals. Do you have the the capacity or or the practice of looking back and and taking pride in in where you've come from is is there a moment that stands out to you where you say I feel so proud of that yeah yeah I mean I feel really proud of Band-Aid I would say that was like mm. a big stepping stone for me because I showed myself that I could do it I think mm. I was ter- I was terrified and I think those moments in a person's life where you step into the fear, especially for me, like I'm a person who is like deeply fearful and anxious and neurotic. <laughs> every single second of every single day, I get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I think in those moments where I'm like, you can do it and it's going to be really scary, but you can are, mm. um, yeah, I felt proud of myself for that. And mm. I think uh, I try to still do that as much as I can. It's, I think it's funny because I, I don't think of you as a fearful fearful person Ooh. because you do so many scary things. But it is an interesting it's an interesting way to move through anxiety is to go like, well, I'm going to dive in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, what I've realized yeah. is I'm no less afraid if I don't do it. Yeah. So people will say, recently I had a conversation with someone who said, well, you seem like such a confident person. <laughs> I just started laughing. I was like, oh my God, yeah. I'm terrified every single second of every yeah. single day. Yeah. But the thing is, I feel this way whether I do the thing or not. Yeah. So I might as well be terrified and doing something rather than terrified and, you know, sitting here feeling like I've just set myself on fire. Absolutely. And I mean... I really struggle with meditation. I really want to get better at it, but <laughs> too. I just like I I think about the people who do that. It's the people who meditate every day. And I learned TM the year I turned 23. Oh, so yeah. I have like 16 <laughs> years of this great knowledge of what will make yeah. me a happier person and I just don't do it. And I think about the people who have the discipline to meditate every day and also those people who get up at like 6:15 in the morning, make a shot of espresso and go for no. a run. Yeah, no. And in my fantasy of the best version of myself, I am a person who does both of those things. And in reality, I do neither of those things. I don't run unless I'm being chased. <laughs> Same. I won't do it. <laughs> Same. I think of it as like a particular brand of hellacious torture. Oh, yeah. Bully. And I don't know and why. I, and I know. I know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm terrible at exercising. I'm terrible at meditation. I know both of those things would be really helpful for my anxiety um, and depression. And uh, But I think stillness, I mean, 
exercise is the opposite of stillness, but um, that's just like pure, like uh, my muscles just have atrophied. So I don't know how to do it, but, um, but like stillness is so difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And so I do think there is something about, we're, we're going to get better at meditating, but, we're gonna but, get better at it. but to sit with those thoughts is so terrifying uh-huh. that I'm sure you're similar that like output and productivity, it seems to be like the way I know how yeah. to not be paralyzed by those thoughts, but I got to throw some new tools in, <laughs> into the toolkit. And the <laughs> discipline, I think too, when you struggle with anxiety and or, you know, anxiety, depression, the thing that's the best for you is the thing that you're the best at avoiding. Oh, and, totally. and when I use the universal you, I mean me. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> I'm like, I really, I know I should do this, but what if I sat here and stressed out about not doing it instead? Yeah. That is what I'll probably do. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, fully. I know. I have a lot of friends who are like really good meditators. And I just, we're going to get there. We're going to get, get there, there Sophia. We're just going to like bring the caboose up from behind. Yeah. Be like, hey guys. You- <laughs> You, we me, and May Martin are gonna we're, we're gonna meditate. I can't wait. <laughs> we're gonna meditate on Zoom and then write a movie, and maybe like Michaela Cole could be involved because oh. I also I would like to throw her name into the mix of just like uh-huh. I watched Feel Good more recently, but like I may destroy you changed my life, yep. and what what she does uh, is truly like earth shattering, yeah. truly in terms of inspiration. I- I was so in awe of it and triggered by it that I had to put it away for a minute. Yeah. And I actually had to do some work to be able to sit with it. Yeah. And I thought, this is a revolution. Yeah, 100%. And I hope she wins all of the awards. All of them. She should win all of the awards and then some. We can also make her some. Like a good well, I, I'm sure, yeah. paper mache class and just be like, hey, this is just a thing we felt the need to make for you so you could have more things on your shelf yes. of all of the awards that you deserve. Totally. I'm okay. sure she wants that from two white women. She's <laughs> like, like, please get trophy. away from me. Here's, here's our garbage trophy. You're so amazing <laughs> that we made you an art project. It wasn't actually a six-year-old child, but it, yeah. I know it looks that way. Um, oh my no, God. yeah, that was, it was a revolution. And, and I, and I, I still think about it almost daily. Like it was what me too did too of like, wait, that's rape, you know, or like, oh, that's, mm-hmm. that's what consent means. Yeah. You know, like what she did with that was just, and again, in terms of tone, the way that she navigated comedy yeah. within that conversation was like, oh my God, mm-hmm. you know? And race politics and, you know, mm-hmm. all of it. Just, all of it. Yeah. Yep. So we're the May and Michaela fan club. <laughs> Welcome to our first meeting, everyone at home. Hope you're, hope you're ready. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I feel like based on what we were just saying about meditating, I might know the answer to this question, but it is my favorite thing to ask everyone who comes on the show. So I'm going to ask you anyway. Great. What in your life feels like a work in progress right now. Mm. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Everything, man, Mm. everything. Uh, I would say the biggest thing, and I know it's sort of um, like trite and cliche and kind of corny, but self-love is like, uh, it's my biggest work in progress. And I think how it ends is very much about that. And inner mm-hmm. child work is very much about that, right? It's mm-hmm. like, how, how do we talk to the 
little person inside of us whose development was arrested by trauma yeah. um, and whose development very much intertwined with self-love and self-worth. So that is so much a work in progress. And like, now I'm like, not, I'm still trying to talk to my inner child, but I'm also trying to talk to like my adult self. <laughs> and I was given the task of, um, by my therapist, of just trying to like rewire all of the negative self-talk that mm. I'm not even aware I'm doing like every second of the day, you know, of just like anytime I walk past a mirror or mm. anytime I, you know, write something down or anytime mm. I have an interaction, how much that is impacting just like death by a thousand cuts, um, mm. that, uh, uh, you know, self, self cuts. Yep. <laughs> and I have such a hard time doing the inverse like, because what my therapist told me to do was like, every time you have to catch yourself and you have to say the opposite. And I'm like, I don't want to. That's <laughs> also, but the opposite like, isn't true. The time? I know. I know. Who has the time? I would say that's probably the biggest work in progress for sure. And will, I'm sure, be a lifelong journey. Mm. Something that really, and I, I, I should, first of all, say thank you for sharing that. And I see and feel you. Thank you. <laughs> and the thing I come back to a lot that really, it didn't make me change that negative self-talk behavior necessarily, but it put it in perspective for me. I was having a day, you know, venting about like every which way I suck. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I was at work and I was sitting in the hair chair and I used to work with this phenomenal woman named Jojo who was kind of like the aunt we all wished we'd had, yeah. you know, and like big sister auntie vibes. And she like let me rant for a little bit and then she spun the chair around and she literally grabbed me by the shoulders, shook me and said, you watch your fucking mouth. You're talking about my best friend like that. Oh my God. And she got right in my face like this. And I, it was such a shock because I realized I would never allow a human to speak about my best friend the way I was speaking about myself. Yeah. And that's the sort of the bridge to a saner self-dialogue for me. Mm. Because just saying the opposite feels weird. Yeah. You're like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I, I think I'm a failure. So saying I'm a success doesn't work. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever the, the story is. But if... If I can say, what would my best friend say? What would mm. I say about my best friend? Mm -hmm. That begins to change. That's such a good tool and like a good life hack. Mm. Thank you for that. I'm going to now try to reframe <laughs> mm -hmm. this, this task that I've uh, been trying to achieve because I've been just failing miserably. See, there you go. I just said something negative about myself. I've been succeeding. <laughs> Period. I'm into it. Period. <laughs> You're like, I shall not say the rest of what I'm thinking. I'm just going to walk around going, I am succeeding. I am succeeding. I am succeeding. I am succeeding. Oh my God. My friend has a um, two-year-old daughter and she filmed her daughter doing like affirmations in the morning that 
I guess my friend has just started to, I guess, teach as a practice where her daughter's every morning is like, I'm beautiful. I'm smart. I'm funny. I'm crazy. I'm, you know, all of these things. I'm deep. I'm wild. And just watching this video, I, of course, was like in a fucking puddle. I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) But what a great thing to teach little people to do, you know, because I think it is so much about the habits we form, obviously, at a young age. And, Mm -hmm. um, and that's such a great habit that maybe we can still form at this age. Okay. We're young. We're still We're, at a young yeah. age. <laughs> we are. We can also, we can have a, we can have an affirmations accountability something. Yes. Oh, let's do that. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to text you and say, have you done your affirmations today? Deal. <laughs> okay, great. Deal. I interviewed Mary Louise Parker a few weeks ago and she was talking about how she gave up the piano and I'm currently learning the piano. And I was like, every time I have a piano lesson, I'm going to send you a picture of my keyboard. So yes. here we go. Oh my the, God, I love that. Those little things are really helpful. They really are. Yeah. It's like a, a gym buddy, but like for your self-worth. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only kind of buddy I've ever needed. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I'm so excited for you. The movie is incredible. Congratulations just on all of the things. And also of just having literally the most perfect skin of any person that I know. Can I tell <sighs> you something, Sophia? My skin has been so traumatic for me my whole life. Really? And it's so nice when I hear that from people because I I look at everyone's like we talk about. I look at everyone else's skin and be like, "Oh, their skin is so beautiful." But oh. I, yeah, I suffered. I suffered from cystic acne my entire life. I did too. And you did. Oh my god! Wait, so I think of you as having bad. the most perfect skin. No, that's how I feel. You literally look like you were you were born on a cloud. You're like you're <laughs> an angel. Right. You're not a human. It's fine. <laughs> Um, I think about it every time you make a video of anything. I'm like, I don't understand how this works. I need, I need, it's so, it's, it's like become light. the cliche of the light. internet, but I'm just <laughs> I like, I need your skincare routine. Like I need to know. Um, but no, I, I likewise, I mean, I was put on every medication, Accutane, which by the way is terrible for terrible like teenage minds and depression, but yes. I didn't know back then. Yeah. Oh, I did everything. My skin was so devastatingly bad. Oh man. I mean, I thank you for sharing that with me. And I don't talk about it a lot because I, it, it still is so traumatic. I still have so much fear. I'm going to get mm-hmm. a cystic, you know, pimple. Um, and, and like, I never went on Accutane, um, but I was on like horrible rounds of antibiotics mm-hmm. for like mm-hmm. for so many months Ugh. at a time, which just ravaged my system. And, um, yeah, me I think too. it's such a testament to like, what you see in other people and like the perfection that you project onto them when, you know, we all are like struggling with various traumas and I have scars on my skin that I, you know, it's all I can see when I look at myself. Um, So thank you for saying that. And I'm going to try to, again, I'm going to try to speak to myself that way. (laughs) And you have the, I I always look at your skin. (laughs) So do you. I think about it. I, I'm serious. Every time I watch a video you make, I'm like, she's a she's got like a baby angel butt on her face. It's just perfect. It's never seen the sun. So congratulations. Well, congratulations to you. And thank you. <laughs> See, look at us. The affirmation circle is alive and well. It's happening. Everyone at home, please look in the mirror and tell yourself you have beautiful skin. Yes. 